We'll get to uh, Acts 4 here in just a quick second. There's a story about Nikita Khrushchev, who was the premier of Russia for many years. He was after Joseph Stalin, and uh, he denounced the totalitarianism, the the communism of of Stalin. He denounced those policies quite a bit publicly, and there was one time in a public meeting when when, uh, he was speaking powerfully and denouncing Stalin's regime when he was interrupted from a shout from somebody in the audience. A heckler in the audience shouted up in the middle of Khrushchev's speech, This heckler yelled, you were one of Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev was known to be a man with some force to him. And so he roared, who said that? In the middle of this public meeting, you could hear a pin drop. There was an agonizing silence that followed Khrushchev roaring at this heckler who had interrupted him. And nobody in the room dared move a muscle. And then Khrushchev, almost admitting his own fault in the matter, he quietly responded by saying, Now you know why. Now you know why. Friends, the Christian life takes courage. Far more courage than any of us could have imagined when we walked down that aisle or said, yes, I want to go down to the waters. Far more courage than really any of us thought it would. And fear, friends, fear is what drives a lot of human behavior. You can bank on that one. The older I get, the more I realize how much this is true. That fear drives a lot of human behavior, both in terms of what we do and what we don't do. But there's an interesting thing about fear. Fear is something, fear is something we learn. Fear is learned. I remember very clearly when I first started walking to school, I, honestly, I, had, I hadn't a care in the world about walking a couple miles to school as an elementary kid. First, second grade, walking to school for a couple of miles. I wouldn't, in a hundred years, let my kid do that now, and neither would most of you. <laughs> but I remember clearly walking to school, not having a care in the world, no fear whatsoever, until I learned about bullies <laughs> and the harshness of the world and what can happen to kids when they're walking to school. And then I started to be a little bit scared about walking to school. Fear began to, to drive how I felt about that situation. I could have used, I could have used, like Acts 4, some holy boldness about my fear. And, and this issue of courage, this issue of, of fear, is something that's important for us because it's time for unproductive Christians in America to unlearn worldly fear. It's time for unfruitful people sitting in our pews to unlearn worldly fear and to learn the opposite, which is what we see in Acts 4. Holy boldness. Holy boldness that communicates the gospel in word and deed. And whether you know it or not, you need holy boldness. 
Because there's no achieving God's mission for the world and his calling for your life specifically unless you live with courage. You won't get there. It won't happen. Mark it now. If you want to live by fear, you will not go where God wants you to go. You won't become who God wants you to become. If you live by fear, driven by worldly fear of mankind, you will not be fruitful for the kingdom as he's called you to be. You won't be fruitful for the kingdom as the gospel deserves. And your friends and your family and your neighbors and your co-workers will miss out on a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why we have to unlearn worldly fear. Follow along in Acts 4. As we see what happens when believers show some holy boldness. (laughs) They show some holy boldness. You see, Christians with courage, they preach and they pray, no matter the threat. Courageous Christians will preach and pray regardless of the circumstances because they know that's what they're called to. They know that's what the gospel deserves. They know that Jesus' death on the cross deserves nothing less than proclamation of the gospel and praying for boldness to be able to do that. (laughs) We'll talk about that as we go along here. Look at verse 1. It's a continuation of Acts 3. They're still uh, telling about this miracle that had happened. It says, as they, Peter and John, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. It's getting serious. The bigwigs are coming out. If you were here last week, you'll remember that, that Peter and John were sort of surprised by this ministry opportunity. And they took advantage of the opportunity to bear witness to the gospel and the healing that they did by uh, the power of the name of Jesus. The, the healing of the lame man who'd been lame for 40 years. So Peter started to preach in Acts 3 last week. He started to preach to those who had witnessed that healing. So as they were speaking to the temple, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. They were greatly annoyed, it says. I love that phrase, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Let's pause for just a second here. There are three groups mentioned here that come because it's starting to get serious people are following this christ guy and the religious leaders are getting a little upset so they have three of these categories of leaders that come the priests the captain of the temple and the sadducees they brought out the bigwigs because they're sort of worried about this group of of jesus followers causing a ruckus so it says that there were some priests they were just probably normal priests from the temple uh, where they were meeting there some of them might have been a part of the sanhedrin which is the jewish ruling council of, of 71, they were, they were the supreme court of all the land. And so we've also got the captain of the temple here. The captain of the temple was probably the head honcho of the police force for the temple. Uh, yes, they actually had uh, police at the temple. And this policeman, in fact, was second in command. Only the high priest had more authority than this uh, temple guard, than the, the captain of the, of the guard. And then the third category there listed is the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the the ruling class of the Sanhedrin. 
The Sanhedrin, of course, was that ruling council, and they were the ruling class, sort of the political heavyweights in Judaism at the time. They were the majority of the Sanhedrin. In fact, the Pharisees hadn't become popular until just before Jesus started to come. And so, so the Pharisees were in the Sanhedrin, but they were a minority uh, position. So the Sadducees held sway in Jerusalem, political force at the time. And so so they didn't believe, by the way, the Sadducees, they didn't believe that, that there was a literal resurrection of the dead. They didn't think that, that the idea of a Messiah was that a person would come. They just thought it was an idea. And so they didn't believe in the resurrection. So here comes Peter preaching a resurrection. This whole thing about Jesus coming up and, and being raised from the dead flies in the face of the political establishment. So they're getting worried. They're getting really worried. In fact, they're so worried... These three groups, which have serious, serious differences between them theologically, they come together. They've been talking. They clearly think something is up, and they have reason to be worried. So these three groups, which have lots of differences between them, come together. So long story short, they're worried, and they set aside their differences to come after Peter and John. (laughs) Because this new group of Christians were a serious threat to their well-established power structures. So it says they were greatly annoyed there, verse 2. Greatly annoyed. That, that, that could also be translated grieved. They were so annoyed, they were on fire emotionally, it grieved them. So they were fired up. So verse 3. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. The big dogs are starting to come out in full force. They've had enough of this group invading their space. And they're ready to take Peter and John down as a lesson to the rest of the new followers of Christ. But, but, verse 4, important clue here for where we're headed, but many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. Luke is saying here, so so they're preaching, and the Jewish leaders are getting upset, and they start the threats. And they're going to take him to court. They're going to get him in trouble. They're going to say, you can't keep preaching that name of Jesus. The gospel is about to become illegal here, folks. But Luke is saying, verse 4, you cannot stop the gospel. You cannot stop the gospel if the people of God are living with courage. There's nobody who's going to stop it. It only took about two to three weeks to get to where we are now. They're not even counting everybody. They're just counting men now. Easily 10, 15, maybe even 20,000 at this point. Just two to three weeks ago, the group of 120 of the first Christ followers were there. The first sermon Peter preaches, 3,000 respond. This next sermon, two to three weeks after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, 5,000 men plus. So Luke is telling us no one is going to stop the progress of the gospel when believers live with holy boldness. When Christians have courage to continue preaching, (laughs) to continue bearing witness to God's work. So in verse 5, we begin the trial. It says this, And the next day, because it's only in the mornings when they meet to do trials, there's a Jewish law about that, so court was closed for the day before. So, So the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes The religious leaders gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. 
So Luke is very careful here to, to recount specific details to say there's evidence here. These guys were here. By the way, he points that out because Annas and Caiaphas took part in the crucifixion of Jesus. They were there for the trial of Christ himself. They know what's going on, and so they're going to apply the same kind of heat to Peter and to John. They're also certainly willing to do that to the rest of the believers. So verse 7, when they had set them in the midst of them, they usually sat around them, they inquired by what power or by what name did you do this? By what power or by what name did you do this? (laughs) So check this out. These Jewish leaders are bringing them in to intimidate them. They've kept them in jail overnight. They're starting with those sort of you know, interrogation room tactics. I, you know, sort of imagine all the lights going off, except for the middle. And they're walking around, and they're putting the heat onto Peter and John. When they ask, of all things, by what power or by what name did you do this? <laughs> I can just sort of imagine Peter and John looking at each other going, this is perfect. This is great. Bring it on. Instead of fear and worry and doubt, oh, they understood that they were in trouble. They measured the situation accurately. Fear is not cluelessness about the stakes. Fear is understanding the stakes, looking them in the eye and saying, I'm going there anyway because I know it's good and right. And that's what Peter and John are doing. They're saying, let's do this. Bring it on. So instead of fear and worry and worldly doubt, their lives, which are no longer their own because they're dead to self when they live for Christ, their lives are about constant vigilance with the opportunities presented to them. And here one lays in their lap an invitation to speak the truth with holy boldness. That's what preaching is. They're ready to speak, ready to preach, They're ready to die for the gospel if need be. So, verse 8, Peter tells them boldly. We know that because it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he couldn't control his mouth. It meant that he was bold, that he was courageous. That he had spiritual resolve that loves and treasures Christ so much that you say with John the Baptist, less of me and more of you, Lord. More and more of you. Fill me. Make me ready for this. And so he says it like that. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He says to them, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today, Concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, and they just flat out says it, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Luke uses that phrase, name of Jesus, 33 times in the book of Acts. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. You threw out that stone. You put it in the heap, in the pile to be thrown away, and God came, found it, and put it on top. 
This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. The capstone, the cornerstone, the one on which it was built and the one that's on top. And there is salvation, key statement, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They could have said, you know what, God, God did it. I mean, I'm thinking if I'm in that situation and I'm feeling the pressure and I'm thinking, I'm about to go to jail. It is not untrue to say that God did it. That's a valid answer that they would have accepted. But that wasn't what they were called to. That doesn't take any courage. God did it. Oh, we agree with you. Okay, be gone. At that point, if you're not preaching the name of Christ, you're just going to say that God did it. Go right ahead. Sure. That doesn't threaten us at all. That was an option. An option they did not take. They had a chance to communicate the gospel, and they did. Peter makes clear here, and he says, Jesus alone, by the name of Jesus alone, the salvation comes. It's an important part of communicating the gospel. Allah, Buddha, Joseph Smith, they don't work. Peter didn't say that, but he meant that. The exclusivity of Christ as the way of salvation is a crucial, cardinal, core key doctrine of Christianity. And it's important here because, because Peter of John could have said, God did it, but they didn't. They didn't. They kept up with the radically Christ-centered call of boldness. There is no other name, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so at this point, Peter could have just let it go but he turns the tables. He says, Jesus did this. <laughs> he knows full well how they're going to hear that. He knows they don't want to hear that. And so he turns the tables on them at this point, and his preaching of the gospel in the Sanhedrin puts them on trial. They now have to reckon with what has happened and with what Peter is claiming. Look at verse 13. I, I love this verse. Key verse in chapter 4. One of them. Now, when they saw the boldness, that is, when the Jewish leaders saw the boldness, circle that word boldness, confidence, courage, resolve, stick to When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. When they saw their boldness, they were astonished. This, this doesn't mean that they thought that they were dumb. It just means that they thought that they were unschooled like they were. They were unlettered. They didn't go to college. They didn't go to Jewish college like, like they had done. That just served to make them all the more amazed at the testimony that he gave. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? The fact that they were unschooled, unlettered, in the minds of of the leaders, meant that when they gave their testimony, they were all the more amazed. You don't, you, you don't have to know the right words. You have to know that you love Jesus and He saved you. And you can witness to the truth of that in whatever form it takes for you. 
I love, I love to see people of God. I love to read biographical snippets about leaders in history and, and people throughout the church who have stood up like this. Just like Peter and John in the middle of the most pressured situation of the day for somebody like that. It doesn't get worse than being on trial in front of Sanhedrin. I love to hear about strength and resolve and boldness kinds of stories from believers. You know, you know, I'm hearing a little more here and there from people at FCC. Every couple days or so, every few days, I hear somebody say something like, I've I got to tell you what happened. I've I got to tell you about this conversation that I had with a friend of mine. I, I, need you, I need you to be praying about this co-worker of mine. I have a family member who needs Christ. Every few days, I'm hearing a lot of that go on. Reading about the first believers in Acts and, and hearing about the people of God in those kinds of situations out in the world, that's boldness like Peter and John in front of the Sanhedrin. That gets me fired up. So don't miss what's going on here. Look at, look at the end of verse 13 here. This is the key to this beginning section here. They recognized the Sanhedrin. These, these leaders recognized that they had been with Jesus. Not just a literal sense, not just they recognized them when they had been with Jesus, but they recognized, they realized that it was being with Jesus that explained why they spoke with that kind of boldness. Don't miss that. It was being with Jesus that meant that they recognized why they spoke with boldness and authority. Isn't that truly what makes anyone courageous to preach the gospel? I don't mean standing up here doing what I'm doing now, though it doesn't exclude that. But I mean anyone in the body of Christ courageous enough to speak the truth that Jesus' death redeems sinners. Any form that takes for any one of you in any context is preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Who needs it, whom you love, feels the warmth of Christ through a smile. You've preached the gospel. You've communicated it in word and deed right there. It can be speaking a kind word to somebody that brings healing. All of these kinds of things are preaching. And when it's done with boldness and with courage, it moves mountains in the lives of people and it witnesses to the work of God. So friends, does, does verse 13... Does that apply to you? When others see you, do they recognize that you've been with Jesus? Do they see the light of Christ in you? The witness continues. Verse 14 says, seeing the man who was healed standing before them. They had nothing to say in opposition. A witness was this lame man healed standing next to them. They were stumped. So verse 15, they went back to the drawing board. It said, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident to all. Nobody misses what had happened here. 
the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So now they're in a catch-22. But in order that it may spread no further, this is what they come up with, verse 17. In order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. I look back and ask, I think, really? That's your tactic? Stop speaking the name of Jesus? It's the number one thing that they were called to. I don't think the Jewish leaders understood. I don't think they understood how truly sold out these people were to Jesus Christ. They had, they had watched Jesus literally dying on cross for them. They had been with Jesus. And so they warned them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So I think so I think Peter and John, verse 19, they look at each other again and say, All right, let's do it again. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. <laughs> For we cannot but speak. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Does that describe you? You cannot, you cannot help but speak about what you've seen and heard in your own life for the gospel to transform your hearts and your mind. I cannot, I cannot help can you say that, really, in your heart? I can't help but do it. You won't stop me. No matter the circumstance, regardless of the threat, regardless of my fears, they stand up and they say, I can't help it. I cannot help but speak of what I've seen and heard in my life. I have such a deep and abiding love relationship with Christ that it inevitably shows up in my life in a way that others notice. Verse 21, they let them go. They threatened them some more, it said. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, the witnesses around them. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. I think, uh, I think a life of boldness requires... Prayers, prayers we're not used to. I think a life of boldness requires praying for things like strength and courage and fear of God instead of fear of man, instead of fear of the world, instead of fear of what my friend is going to say. Because those hindrances keep the gospel from being proclaimed. And so we see in the context here that they go back to report, verse 23, they go back to report to their friends what had happened. And it says this, verse 23, when they were released, 
they went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and the elders and what they had said to them. It's time to get ready, friends. It's now illegal to preach the gospel. It's going to get ugly. So what do they do? They pray. They pray a courageous prayer that acknowledges God as sovereign Lord. Who just might want to preach the gospel in ways that involve hardship. It may not be something we care to admit or like to say. But the mission of Christ in the world happens in the same way the cross does. Using brokenness and hurt and pain and your suffering, redeeming it for the purposes of making His glory known. In fact, if it's not, if it's not incarnational, Jesus on the cross as a suffering servant ministry, it ain't ministry. Mark that down. If you're not in a place where you might be uncomfortable, and where you need to pray prayers like these first believers, then you're not doing Christ-like ministry. You're playing the game of churchianity. So listen to this prayer. When they heard it, when they heard Peter and John's report, They lifted their voices. This is verse 24. They lifted their voices together to God and they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, they interpret Psalm 2 here in light of the cross. Basically, when the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain, all of those who participated in the crucifixion, they are raging, they are plotting in vain. It says the kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers gathered together. They're part of... The political power, the Herods and the Pilots of the world who are, who are going against Christ in the crucifixion. Why do they rage and plot in vain against the Lord and His anointed? It's a vain fight for them. Not the believers, but for the world. And they say this, verse 27, this is still a prayer, speaking to God. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And look at this, circle this, underline this, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with with all boldness. Is your prayer to continue to speak the word with all boldness? Do you pray like that? Are you imploring God for courage to do what He's called you to do? Because apparently the mission to which God has called us requires more courage than we currently are needing. The mission to which God has called us requires more courage than we currently seem to need. The vast majority of Christians in our pews and in our churches in America are so blindly comfortable that they have no idea of what it means 
to need holy boldness. Most of us are so far away from the front lines of spiritual battle that we don't even know what is meant by a prayer that cries out to God for courage and holy boldness. Rather, we pray prayers for our comfort from bunions when our friends and family are in danger of eternity without a saving relationship with Christ. Woe to us if we are not in a place where our prayers demand boldness. Woe to us that we have become so so blindly comfortable with our own concerns. Those of us who already have victory over sin. Those of us, like Romans 8 says, who have no condemnation, who have no need for fear. No one is suggesting, by the way, that it necessarily means that you're going to have to be ready to get your head lopped off tomorrow. But, but by the time all of our generations are gone, it may not be far from that in this very country. It may mean something more like praying for holy boldness to have that hard conversation with that family member or that church friend or that coworker that you've been avoiding. That requires holy boldness. That requires real courage. That requires strength of filling by the Holy Spirit. Whatever it means, whatever God's calling on you that you're not yet answering, it requires courage and boldness to pray prayers like that. May we have hearts May we have hearts that are so in love with Jesus and His work for us on the cross that our innermost prayer is to beg Him to fill us with courage so that He can be proclaimed in our lives. Father in heaven, we admit before You that we have filtered our lives through selfish, prideful, small values that we have fallen in love with idols. We have served and worship created things rather than the Creator. And so we repent. We turn from lives that are content with ease and comfort. 
Make us like Peter and John, willing to step into the battle with the world around us saying what they will as we joyfully proclaim the name of Jesus.